Section four of Reminiscences of Captain Grono. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Reminiscences of Captain Grono by Captain Rees Howell Grono. Section four. THE GUARDS MARCHING FROM ANGUIN ON THE 15TH OF JUNE Two battalions of my regiment had started from Brussels. The other, the second, to which I belonged, remained in London, and I saw no prospect of taking part in the great events which were about to take place on the continent. Early in June I had the honour of dining with Colonel Darling, the Deputy Adjutant-General, and I was there introduced to Sir Thomas Picton as a countryman and neighbour of his brother Mr. Turberville, of Evany Abbey in Glamorganshire. He was very gracious, and on his two aides-de-camp, Major Tyler and my friend Chambers, of the Guards, lamenting that I was obliged to remain at home, Sir Thomas said, "'Is the lad really anxious to go out?' Chambers answered that it was the height of my ambition." Sir Thomas inquired if all the appointments to his staff were filled up, and then added, with a grim smile, "'If Tyler is killed, which is not at all unlikely, I do not know why I should not take my young countryman. He may go over with me, if he can get leave.' I was overjoyed at this, and after thanking the General a thousand times, made my bow and retired. I was much elated at the thoughts of being Picton's aide-de-camp, though that somewhat remote contingency depended upon my friends Tyler or Chambers or others meeting with an untimely end. But at eighteen, on ne doute de rien. So I set about thinking how I should manage to get my outfit, in order to appear at Brussels in a manner worthy of the aide-de-camp of the great general. As my funds were at a low ebb, I went to Cox and Greenwoods, those staunch friends of the hard-up soldier. Sailors may talk of the little cherub that sits up aloft, but commend me for liberality, kindness, and generosity to my old friends in Craig's Court. I there obtained two hundred pounds, which I took with me to a gambling-house in St. James's Square, where I managed by some wonderful accident to win six hundred pounds. And having thus obtained the sinews of war, I made numerous purchases— amongst others two first-rate horses at Tattersall's for a high figure, which were embarked for Ostend along with my groom. I had not got leave, but I thought I should get back after the great battle that appeared imminent, in time to mount guard at St. James's. On a Saturday I accompanied Chambers in his carriage to Ramsgate, where Sir Thomas Picton and Tyler had already arrived. We remained there for the Sunday, and embarked on Monday in a vessel which had been hired for the general and suite. On the same day we arrived at Ostend, and put up at an hotel in the square, where I was surprised to hear the general, in excellent French, get up a flirtation with our very pretty waiting-maid. Sir Thomas Picton was a stern-looking, strong-built man, about the middle height, and considered very like the Hetman Platoff. He generally wore a blue frock-coat, very tightly buttoned up to the throat, a very large black silk neck-cloth, 
showing little or no shirt-collar, dark trousers, boots, and a round hat. It was in this very dress that he was attired at Quatre Bras, as he had hurried off to the scene of action before his uniform arrived. After sleeping at Ostend, the General and Tyler went the next morning to Ghent, and on Thursday to Brussels. I proceeded by boat to Ghent, and without stopping hired a carriage, and arrived in time to order rooms for Sir Thomas at the Hotel d'Angleterre, Rue de la Madeleine at Brussels. Our horses followed us. While we were at breakfast, Colonel Canning came to inform the General that the Duke of Wellington wished to see him immediately. Sir Thomas lost not a moment in obeying the order of his chief, leaving the breakfast-table and proceeding to the park, where Wellington was walking with Fitzroy Somerset and the Duke of Richmond. Picton's manner was always more familiar than the Duke liked in his lieutenants, and on this occasion he approached him in a careless sort of way, just as he might have met an equal. The Duke bowed coldly to him, and said, "'I am glad you are come, Sir Thomas. The sooner you get on horseback, the better. No time is to be lost. You will take command of the troops in advance. The Prince of Orange knows by this time that you will go to his assistance.' Picton appeared not to like the Duke's manner, for when he bowed and left, he muttered a few words which convinced those who were with him that he was not much pleased with his interview. Quatre bras. I got upon the best of my two horses, and followed Sir Thomas Picton and his staff to Quatre bras at full speed. His division was already engaged in supporting the Prince of Orange, and had deployed itself in two lines in front of the road to Sombref when he arrived. Sir Thomas immediately took the command. Shortly afterwards, Kempt's and Pack's brigades arrived by the Brussels road, and part of Alton's division by the Nivelle road. Ney was very strong in cavalry, and our men were constantly formed into squares to receive them. The famous Kellerman, the hero of Marengo, tried a last charge, and was very nearly being taken or killed, as his horse was shot under him when very near us. Wellington at last took the offensive. A charge was made against the French, which succeeded, and we remained masters of the field. I acted as a mere spectator, and got on one occasion just within twenty or thirty yards of some of the cuirassiers, but my horse was too quick for them. On the 17th Wellington retreated upon Waterloo, about eleven o'clock. The infantry were masked by the cavalry in two lines parallel to the Namur road. Our cavalry retired on the approach of the French cavalry in three columns on the Brussels road. A torrent of rain fell upon the Emperor's ordering the heavy cavalry to charge us, while the fire of sixty or eighty pieces of cannon showed that we had chosen our position at Waterloo. Chambers said to me, "'Now, Grono, the loss has been very severe in the guards, and I think you ought to go and see whether you are wanted.' "'for as you have really nothing to do with Picton, "'you had better join your regiment, "'or you may get into a scrape.' "'Taking his advice, "'I rode off to where the guards were stationed. "'The officers, amongst whom I remember "'Colonel Thomas and Brigade Major Miller, "'expressed their astonishment and amazement "'on seeing me, and exclaimed, "'What the deuce brought you here? "'Why are you not with your battalion in London? 
Get off your horse and explain how you came here. Things were beginning to look a little awkward, when Gunthorpe, the adjutant, a great friend of mine, took my part, and said, "'As he is here, let's make the most of him. There's plenty of work for everyone. Come, Grono, you shall go with the on-Captain Clements, and a detachment to the village of Waterloo, to take charge of the French prisoners.' I said, "'What the deuce shall I do with my horse?' Upon which the on-Captain Stopford, aide-de-camp to Sir John Bing, volunteered to buy him. Having thus once more become a foot-soldier, I started according to orders, and arrived at Waterloo. GENERAL APPEARANCE OF THE FIELD OF WATERLOO The day on which the Battle of Waterloo was fought seemed to have been chosen by some providential accident for which human wisdom is unable to account. On the morning of the 18th, the sun shone most gloriously, and so clear was the atmosphere that we could see the long, imposing lines of the enemy most distinctly. Immediately in front of the division to which I belonged, and, I should imagine, about half a mile from us, were posted cavalry and artillery, and to the right and left the French had already engaged us, attacking Hugomont and La Haye Sainte. We heard incessantly the measured boom of artillery, accompanied by the incessant rattling echoes of musketry. The whole of the British infantry not actually engaged were at that time formed into squares, and as you looked along our lines it seemed as if we formed a continuous wall of human beings. I recollect distinctly being able to see Bonaparte and his staff, and some of my brother officers using the glass exclaimed, "'There he is, on his white horse!' I should not forget to state that when the enemy's artillery began to play on us, we had orders to lie down, when we could hear the shot and shell whistling around us, killing and wounding great numbers. Then again we were ordered on our knees to receive cavalry. The French artillery, which consisted of three hundred guns, though we did not muster more than half that number, committed terrible havoc during the early part of the battle whilst we were acting on the defensive. The Duke of Wellington in our square About 4 p.m. the enemy's artillery in front of us ceased firing all of a sudden, and we saw large masses of cavalry advance. Not a man present who survived could have forgotten in after-life the awful grandeur of that charge. You discovered at a distance what appeared to be an overwhelming, long-moving line, which, ever advancing, glittered like a stormy wave of the sea when it catches the sunlight. On they came until they got near enough, whilst the very earth seemed to vibrate beneath the thundering tramp of the mounted host. One might suppose that nothing could have resisted the shock of this terrible moving mass. They were the famous cuirassiers, almost all old soldiers, who had distinguished themselves on most of the battlefields of Europe. In an almost incredibly short period, they were within twenty yards of us, shouting, Vive l'Empereur! The word of command, prepare to receive cavalry, had been given. Every man in the front ranks knelt, and a wall bristling with steel, held together by steady hands, presented itself to the infuriated cuirassier. I should observe that just before this charge the Duke entered by one of the angles of the square 
accompanied only by one aide-de-camp, all the rest of his staff being either killed or wounded. Our commander-in-chief, as far as I could judge, appeared perfectly composed, but looked very thoughtful and pale. He was dressed in a grey greatcoat with a cape, white cravat, leather pantaloons, hessian boots, and a large cocked hat à la russe. The charge of the French cavalry was gallantly executed, but our well-directed fire brought men and horses down, and ere long the utmost confusion arose in their ranks. The officers were exceedingly brave, and by their gestures and fearless bearing did all in their power to encourage their men to form again and renew the attack. The duke sat unmoved, mounted on his favourite charger. I recollect his asking the Honourable Lieutenant-Colonel Stanhope what o'clock it was, upon which Stanhope took out his watch, and said it was twenty minutes past four. The Duke replied, "'The battle is mine, and if the Prussians arrive soon, there will be an end of the war.'" THE FRENCH CAVALRY CHARGING THE BRUNSWICKERS Soon after the cuirassier had retired, we observed to our right the red hussars of the Garde Imperiale, charging a square of Brunswick riflemen, who were about fifty yards from us. This charge was brilliantly executed, but the well-sustained fire from the square baffled the enemy, who were obliged to retire after suffering a severe loss in killed and wounded. The ground was completely covered with those brave men, who lay in various positions mutilated in every conceivable way. Among the fallen we perceived the gallant colonel of the hussars lying under his horse which had been killed. All of a sudden two riflemen of the Brunswickers left their battalion, and after taking from their helpless victim his purse, watch, and other articles of value, they deliberately put the colonel's pistols to the poor fellow's head and blew out his brains. "'Shame! Shame!' was heard from our ranks, and a feeling of indignation ran through the whole line. But the deed was done. This brave soldier lay a lifeless corpse in sight of his cruel foes, whose only excuse, perhaps, was that their sovereign, the Duke of Brunswick, had been killed two days before by the French. Again and again various cavalry regiments, heavy dragoons, lancers, hussars, carabineers of the guard, endeavoured to break our walls of steel. The enemy's cavalry had to advance over ground which was so heavy that they could not reach us except at a trot. They therefore came upon us in a much more compact mass than they probably would have done if the ground had been more favourable. When they got within ten or fifteen yards they discharged their carbines, to the cry of Vive l'Empereur! Their fire produced little effect, as that of cavalry generally does. Our men had orders not to fire unless they could do so on a near mass, the object being to economise our ammunition, and not to waste it on scattered soldiers. The result was that when the cavalry had discharged their carbines and were still far off, we occasionally stood face to face, looking at each other inactively, not knowing what the next move might be. The lancers were particularly troublesome, and approached us with the utmost daring. On one occasion, I remember, 
the enemy's artillery having made a gap in the square, the lancers were evidently waiting to avail themselves of it, to rush among us, when Colonel Staples, at once observing their intention, with the utmost promptness filled up the gap, and thus again completed our impregnable steel wall. But in this act he fell mortally wounded. The cavalry, seeing this, made no attempt to carry out their original intentions, and observing that we had entirely regained our square, confined themselves to hovering round us. I must not forget to mention that the lancers in particular never failed to dispatch our wounded whenever they had an opportunity of doing so. When we received cavalry, the order was to fire low, so that on the first discharge of musketry the ground was strewed with the fallen horses and their riders, which impeded the advance of those behind them, and broke the shock of the charge. It was pitiable to witness the agony of the poor horses, who really seemed conscious of the dangers that surrounded them. We often saw a poor wounded animal raise its head, as if looking for its rider to afford him aid. There is nothing, perhaps, amongst the episodes of a great battle more striking than the debris of a cavalry charge, where men and horses are seen scattered and wounded on the ground in every variety of painful attitude. Many a time the heart sickened at the moaning tones of agony which came from man and scarcely less intelligent horse, as they lay in fearful agony upon the field of battle. THE LAST CHARGE AT WATERLOO It was about five o'clock on that memorable day that we suddenly received orders to retire behind an elevation in our rear. The enemy's artillery had come up en masse within a hundred yards of us. By the time they began to discharge their guns, however, we were lying down behind the rising ground, and protected by the ridge before referred to. The enemy's cavalry was in the rear of their artillery, in order to be ready to protect it if attacked, but no attempt was made on our part to do so. After they had pounded away at us for about half an hour, they deployed, and up came the whole mass of the imperial infantry of the guard, led on by the emperor in person. We had now before us probably about twenty thousand of the best soldiers in France, the heroes of many memorable victories. We saw the bearskin caps rising higher and higher as they ascended the ridge of ground which separated us, and advanced nearer and nearer to our lines. It was at this moment the Duke of Wellington gave his famous order for our bayonet charge, as he rode along the line. These are the precise words he made use of. "'Guards, get up and charge!' We were instantly on our legs, and after so many hours of inaction and irritation at maintaining a purely defensive attitude, all the time suffering the loss of comrades and friends, the spirit which animated officers and men may easily be imagined. After firing a volley, as soon as the enemy were within shot, we rushed on with fixed bayonets, and that hearty hurrah peculiar to British soldiers. It appeared that our men, deliberately and with calculation, singled out their victims. For as they came upon the Imperial Guard, our line broke, and the fighting became irregular. 
the impetuosity of our men seemed almost to paralyse their enemies. I witnessed several of the Imperial Guard who were run through the body, apparently without any resistance on their parts. I observed a big Welshman of the name of Hughes, who was six feet seven inches in height, run through with his bayonet and knock down with the butt-end of his firelock, I should think a dozen at least of his opponents. This terrible contest did not last more than ten minutes, for the Imperial Guard was soon in full retreat, leaving all their guns and many prisoners in our hands. The famous General Cambronne was taken prisoner fighting hand to hand with the gallant Sir Colin Halkett, who was shortly after shot through the cheeks by a grape-shot. Cambronne's supposed answer of La Garde ne se rend pas was an invention of after-times, and he himself always denied having used such an expression. Huguemont Early on the morning after the Battle of Waterloo, I visited Huguemont in order to witness with my own eyes the traces of one of the most hotly contested spots of the field of battle. I came first upon the orchard, and there discovered heaps of dead men in various uniforms, those of the guards in their usual red jackets, the German legion in green, and the French dressed in blue, mingled together. The dead and the wounded positively covered the whole area of the orchard. Not less than two thousand men had there fallen. The apple-trees presented a singular appearance. Shattered branches were seen hanging about their mother-trunks, in such profusion that one might almost suppose the stiff-growing and stunted tree had been converted into the willow. Every tree was riddled and smashed, in a manner which told that the showers of shot had been incessant. On this spot I lost some of my dearest and bravest friends, and the country had to mourn many of its most heroic sons slain here. I must observe that, according to the custom of commanding officers, whose business it is, after a great battle, to report to the commander-in-chief, the muster-roll of fame always closes before the rank of captain. It has always appeared to me a great injustice that there should ever be any limit to the role of gallantry of either officers or men. If a captain, lieutenant, an ensign, a sergeant, or a private, has distinguished himself for his bravery, his intelligence, or both, their deeds ought to be reported, in order that the sovereign and nation should know who really fight the great battles of England. Of the class of officers and men to which I have referred, there were many of even superior rank who were omitted to be mentioned in the public dispatches. Thus, for example, to the individual courage of Lord Saltoun and Charlie Ellis, who commanded the light companies, was mainly owing our success at Hougoumont. The same may be said of Needham, Percival, Erskine, Grant, Viner, Buckley, Master, and young Algernon Greville, who at that time could not have been more than seventeen years old. Excepting Percival, whose jaws were torn away by a grape-shot, every one of these heroes miraculously escaped. 
I do not wish, in making these observations, to detract from the bravery and skill of officers whose names have already been mentioned in official dispatches, but I think it only just that the services of those I have particularised should not be forgotten by one of their companions in arms. Bing with his brigade at Waterloo no individual officer more distinguished himself than did General Bing at the Battle of Waterloo. In the early part of the day he was seen at Hougoumont, leading his men in the thick of the fight. Later he was with the battalion in Square, where his presence animated to the utmost enthusiasm both officers and men. It is difficult to imagine how this courageous man passed through such innumerable dangers from shot and shell, without receiving a single wound. I must also mention some other instances of courage and devotion, in officers belonging to this brigade. For instance, it was Colonel MacDonnell, a man of colossal stature, with Hesketh, Bowes, Tom Sowerby, and Hugh Seymour, who commanded from the inside the chateau of Hugoumont. When the French had taken possession of the orchard, they made a rush at the principal door of the chateau, which had been turned into a fortress. MacDonnell and the above officers placed themselves, accompanied by some of their men, behind the portal and prevented the French from entering. Amongst other officers of that brigade who were most conspicuous for bravery, I would record the names of Montague, the vigorous Gooch, as he was called, and the well-known Jack Standen. End of section 4. Recording by Ruth Golding.